Good morning once again. I love that song, especially with a full orchestra. You, have you ever thought about the last stanza there? The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, when that trump blasts that day, there will be many who it will not be well with their soul. And that will be, that'll be an amazing sound to us. But, but I, get the, I get the feeling that it'll be a sound that will make us, make us quake. And yet we can say it is well. It is well because my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but all of it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Amen. Turn with me to Psalm 119, verse 81. We're at the last Sunday in January. That is amazing. And it, see, it feels as if some way this is kind of the, the last jumping off point before we're really into the new year and we're really going. So I'm encouraged to be able to be with us together to see what the Lord might have for us in His Word, what might solidify our course of the way we will walk in this coming year. Pardon me, my voice post by a couple days, the flu, but my voice doesn't know that yet, so I'll be drinking today. I want to emphasize this morning prayer once again. And this is, and I hope it's not gone unnoticed by many. And it's not been uh, misunderstood in any way. The emphasis that we've had on prayer from the pulpit in the past few months. Mr. Welch has always had an emphasis on prayer for our church in its nine and a half years of existence. But it seems as if God has given us an extra emphasis because as we've gone systematically through the word... And as God has brought visiting guest speakers, I can think of Gerald Sarawaji, there seems to be this renewed push uh, that the Lord is giving to us with an emphasis on prayer. And many have spoken to me, many of y'all and and others have said, this seems to be a year, 2013, where we really want to make prayer uh, a greater emphasis in personal lives and in corporate lives. And that's encouraging. It's very encouraging. So I think we certainly have that for us in the text this morning. We've gotten to the 11th section of eight verses, and I I want to briefly state that because we're taking eight verses at a time in section, that there is some leeway in the text to where we might go. There is a there's a clear theme pretty much between each eight verses, but we could take one verse and work on that. And that seems to be a little bit of the case this morning. I don't think we're stretching by any means. And I think we'll see it clearly to come at this section from prayer. Certainly uh, much of this psalm is a prayer by the psalmist. But I I think that there's a a direction that we can take this morning that may not be clearly uh, portrayed as in it's just articulated uh, word by word. But I think it is very much there. And so we want to take prayer as our subject, not just the specific subject of prayer, but we want to take it a little deeper than that and talk about persevering prayer. The nature of persevering prayer. So not just normal prayer, but the next, kind of the next level down, a deeper level. Due to time, my wife can't always read over my sermon notes, but she did this morning. And she admonished me that I had a lot of the American church phrases of, the American church in, the, in my notes this morning. 
And we talked about whether or not I should remove that. And we both agreed that we are the American church. And so I'm going to speak in a way this morning that may sound very hard against the American church. But we, me, we are the American church. And and we've got to kind of realize this because we have a problem. The American church is a problem. As Mrs. Clark and and many of others said with what what Rick Phillips said a couple of Wednesday nights ago, the American church is going to extinct, is going extinct. And we may be at the the top of the level of the average, which I believe we are, and, and could be a lot more down farther below us. But we are there. We're part of it. And if we don't continue to push, the average continues to slip. So I want to make clear this morning that um, I don't want in any way to discourage us, but I want us to see realistically what we are facing in the American church today. And I think one of the things that would be where you're facing is that we have grown wimpy in prayer. We do not persevere well in prayer. I can say this for my own life. And, and those that I have, uh, that I call friends outside of this country that are in other countries look at American culture and, and they agree. So I'm not saying that everyone is, has a wimpy prayer life, but I think the majority of us, of us as the American church, we're wimpy in this area. We do not persevere well in prayer. And maybe it's due to the speed of our culture. Maybe it's due to the ability to instantly gratify our wants and desires through Things like the internet or access to friends in, in ways that have never been so. Whatever the reason is, it is a weakness and it is an area that needs to be strengthened. And I think the text this morning speaks very clearly to it. So let's read this. Psalm 119, 81 through 88. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Let us pray once again and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. (coughs) Father in heaven, we do come once again and ask for you to bless this time in your word as we study together. And I pray that I would not stand in the way of what you would seek to speak to us this morning. Use me as an instrument, I pray. If you can use Balaam's donkey, Lord, and yet I am created in your image, I know you can use me in my weakness and inabilities. But I pray, Lord, that you would speak in power, that we might become a church that perseveres in prayer, and that your text, that your word this morning might, might convict us of that, That it would not be based upon any sort of emotion, but be based upon a firm conviction seen from Scripture. And give me the grace to be able to articulate that clearly this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
Turn with me to Matthew 15. Stick a finger there and then turn to Mark 7. To help us better understand the context, the emotion which the psalmist is writing these verses in Psalm uh, 119, I would like to go to the New Testament and look at a, a situation, a story, an example of a woman who had an encounter with Christ and had much the same, if not the same, heart attitude and driving emotion to uh, for prayer in inner conversations with Christ. So, Matthew 15 and then Mark 7. Now, this is the exact same story. We just get a little more detail in the two different Gospels here. And so, we're going to read these. And, and what we're going to do this morning is basically walk back and forth between Psalm 119, Matthew 15, and Mark 7 to be able to qu- sort of cross-examine the, the attitude, the heart behind a man, a woman who has a persevering prayer life. So let me start with the Matthew 15 passage. We're beginning in verse 21. And this is the story of the Syrophoenician woman um, that would be seen in Mark 7. But they're also called, she's also called a Canaanite woman. That would be from the, from the Jews' uh, version of writing this. They're kind of viewing anyone that is not a Jew, a Canaanite. So these words are synonymous with one another. So beginning in 21 of Matthew 15. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. Now to Mark 7, starting in 24. Read it again. Little different uh, information given here. Both of them balanced together, together give us the full story. And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Go back to Matthew 15. Let's get a context of what's happening in in, in the surrounding situation here. Chapter 14, Christ is feeding the 5,000. And this is one of his biggest, most uh, public miracles as far as many people getting this. And so the disciples are beginning, really, in these kind of 
chapter and a half, one chapter whole, between two chapters, getting a, a, a lesson on faith. You feed the 5,000. Then Peter has a little walk on the water there. And Christ exhorts him with, O you of little faith, end of chapter 14. And then Christ seems to get down even to a closer um, emphasis on this message of faith when he goes after the traditions and commandments, goes after the way people are working out, uh, are living out their lives in public. That's very important. In public, not necessarily in private, but in public, thinking that somehow my faith is defined by what others see. It is, but there's more, obviously. And then he goes inside in verse 10 of chapter 15. And so we've really got this push of faith, Christ knowing what's going to happen with this Canaanite woman, Syrophoenician woman, and then she comes. And this is an intense scene because notice there's a break between talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes, beginning of chapter 15, there's a break. They take a little walk. And in that trip, they're walking up on this town and this woman comes out. And this is, this is an intense scene of raw emotion. She is, she is crying out. She is under sheer desperation. She is, she is weeping. I, I can imagine this, this wailing as she's running toward Christ. And her disciples... Uh, they're mixed in with this. And she's, she's falling at his feet and she's pleading with him. It, it's, a, it's an intense scene of motion. She's under a very rough situation. Now go back to Psalm 119 because it's paralleled here. Same type of rough situation. Not sure what the psalmist is going through, but there's, he's going through a tough time here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to read this with some sort of emotion. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I've become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I've not forgotten your statutes. How long, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They've almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Do you see? Do you see? There's the same situation here. Difference in the way they're emoting this, but very much the same situation. The, the similarities don't stop at, this, at the emotion, though. Look at the, what the woman cries out. Matthew 15. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And I love the way Christ responds. He lifts her quietly from the dust, wipes the tears, pats her on the back, gives her a comforting hug. Oh, I'm, I'm here for you. I will, I will be with you in need. Uh-uh. That's not how he responds. He doesn't answer her. He doesn't give one word of encouragement. It's almost as if he flat out ignores this woman. This is not the, the American church version of Christ, of just kind of huggy-feely. This, is, this was hard. Why no answer? The psalmist 
does not have an answer. But he answered her not a word. He did not answer her a word. The psalmist is the same situation here. He's crying out, no answer, nada, nothing, nothing's coming back. Pleading here, desperate situation, nothing happening. I think that begs the question, what happens when I do not have my specific prayer answered immediately? What do I do? Well, I don't know what you do, but I have a couple things as I was thinking. Number one, I, probably I'm going to forget. Forget that I was even praying about this. I'm still going to pray, but I'm going to move on to another prayer. I'll pray about somebody else or something else. I might subconsciously just give up. I'm not sitting there thinking God's never going to answer. And I just give up, but I, I just kind of do. I just think, well, he's, apparently he's not there right now. Whatever it would be. Maybe I'll, I'll look for somewhere else for answers. Maybe I'll take a popular opinion poll. I'll start, what does John Piper think on this situation? Oh, what does John MacArthur think? Uh, what does my father-in-law think? What does Bill Bushhouse think? I, you know, I go to these men I respect that have an understanding of the word and I kind of get a popular opinion of what I should do. Maybe I'll grumble and complain a bit. But have you ever thought that unanswered prayer might actually be a test from the Most Holy God. Now, I know what I would think if I heard someone say that, which is, wait a minute, God always answers prayer. And you would be right, but you would also be wrong. He, he did not answer this prayer. God always answers prayer when He wants to answer prayer. God rarely seems to answer prayer when we want it. So we normally pray and think, well, God's either saying yes, no, or wait. Well, he may be, but he also might not be answering. So really, I think the deeper question for us is, do we, do we pray until we know how God is specifically answering this prayer? Yes, no, or wait. Or are we just thinking, well, he didn't, I really didn't get a clear direction, so I'm assuming kind of a cop-out, I'm kind of petering out in my prayer. I'm just assuming he's saying, wait. Or did, did, we, did we push? Did we press? Did we plead until we were sure? He is saying whatever he has chosen to say in his appointed time. So do we know how God, whatever your specific prayer was, do you know how God specifically answered that? Or are you still pushing for that? I think, from my understanding of the way I pray, don't want to necessarily extrapolate that upon you, but I think it's a common thing that we tend to just sort of peter out in that. And we don't hold fast and continue until we know for sure and have gotten an answer. You know, the woman with the unrighteous judge, this type of picture where she's just pushing, pushing, pushing until she gets the answer. Not necessarily the answer we want, but firm in our understanding of what he has given as an answer. Prayer, it is a test of faith. Let's not, let's not pass over that. It, prayer is not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So prayer is simply, it, it is a, it's an outworking of faith. You cannot see what you're praying to, and you may not necessarily see when he responds or how he responds. But if God 
in his omniscience, in his all knowingness, chooses to not answer my prayer at that moment, it is more than likely, it seems, that he is testing my faith to see, will I, will I move on or will I continue with the faith that I should have had from the beginning, pressing hard for that answer? If I'm really concerned about it, like the psalmist, the Cyphernetian woman, Cyphernetian woman, then I may press hard or I might just beat her out. He knows this. I'm getting ahead of myself. Matthew 15. The woman does not get an answer. So what does she do? If we're praying and we do not get an answer, what do we do? What does the psalmist do? Well, the Syrophoenician woman, she comes again. Look at this. And there's, a, there's an interlude there. The disciples are, they're kind of pushing for her to be sent away. 24, he answered to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I find this interesting. He hasn't answered her yet. He knows she's pleading. This is an intimate group of maybe at best 14 people. Christ, 12 disciples and her. So at best, we're at 14 people. At worst, we could certainly be more people, but we have a small group of people here. He hears, she's standing right there. She's hearing him. And yet he doesn't answer her. He turns and answers the 12. So she knows what he's saying. But look at the way he, he responds to her. He gives an answer. Oh, oh, he gives an answer. 26. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa. Sheer desperation. Raw emotion. And she gets called a dog? I mean, is this, is this justice? From the American's perspective, this is not justice. What, what about the sympathy of, of Christ? Got to be careful here. Christ is not the bad guy in this situation. He knows what is going on. He knows clearly what he's doing. And watch what he does. He knows the strength of this woman. He understands what's happening here. He understands the amount of faith that she has because he's the one who's given it to her. This faith is not her own. It's been, it's been given to her. She, he understands this. And so when the psalmist, when the psalmist is not answered immediately and comes again, when the Syrophoenician woman is, answered, is not answered immediately and comes again, they were not discouraged. They were not dissuaded. They were not depressed or angry. They did not grumble or complain. They were not deterred. In fact, if anything, they came with a greater strength and resolve. It seems as if they're being rejected. No answer. And then this woman gets an answer that she was not expecting, probably. And yet that does not in any way slow her down. And if anything, it seems to empower her, strengthen her, deepen her resolve to come even harder. So why is this? What is this that she has? What is it that the psalmist has that is driving this? Is the answer just to pray harder? I don't think so. And I think we've got to have a warning there. I, I don't in any way want us to just um, stop this morning, leave, and go home and think, well, if I'm going to get an answer and be able to know what God's telling me, I'm just going to have to pray harder. I'm all about hard prayer, and I think that's a wonderful thing. But if we had to be, we had to be very careful because if we, if we just pray hard without the heart attitude 
the emotion by which this woman has and the psalmist has, we'll just be burned out. It'll discourage us. It won't, it won't give us the answers that we think we're looking for. And so somehow we're, we're playing this cause and effect. If I pray harder, I'll get my answers. If nothing, it'll just frustrate us. If nothing else, it's just going to be vain repetitions because we're lacking a heart attitude. Christ spoke about these vain repetitions earlier in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. Go with me to uh, Matthew 6. So we can just go pray harder. I'm all about praying hard. I'm not telling you not to pray hard. What I am telling you is let's first go deeper here. Check to make sure that we have the heart attitude that this woman has. So that, these, these, that praying harder, persevering in our prayer will not just peter us out. Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So here's public prayer being seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. Private prayer, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly, will reward you. Verse 7, we're still in private prayer here. This is not public prayer. Although it certainly can apply. When you pray, do not heaped up empty phrases. Your Bible might say vain repetitions. Lots of words. Praying harder. As the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Before you ask him. So if the answer is not to just pray harder. If there's some other sort of driving force that's going to be... Uh, the, the symbolism behind a pr- person who has, a woman who has, a man who has, uh, the life of persevering prayer. What is it? What is it? Well, I also think that there's one other thing we have to warn against. It's not just to pray harder. And I think there's an answer that is much closer to praying harder. That seems to be a resurgence among um, especially younger people. In the Church of America, which is passion. Have more passion for Jesus. Just love him harder. Go harder. Do harder. Do just do it. I mean, go and be. Really press. Have more passion for Jesus. I'm all about passion for Jesus. And we need more people who are passionate for Jesus Christ. But we have to be very careful here. Because there's our passion. Is it Is it biblical? Are we going to the word and defining how that passion is to look? Because passion devoid of the word isn't going to help us in persevering prayer either. It's going to do the same thing. It's going to discourage us. It's going to leave us frustrated. Look with me into Psalm 42. Certainly a need for passion. But again, without the proper heart attitude... This will not help in persevering prayer. Psalm 42. Here's, a, here's two psalm, two verses out of the Psalms. Psalm 42. And then we're going to go a little further uh, to 84. Just two quick passages. As a deer. Psalm 42 verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. If that's not a picture of passion, I'm not sure what is this. This longing. This Notice Psalm 119, 81 through 80, 80, 81, 80, verse 81, verse 82. There's the words longing in that. It's the same type of thing. There's this pleading. There's this 
sheer desperation to know God. 84, Psalm 84. Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. Now let's go to Psalm 119. What is it? What is the driving force? Look with me at verse 88. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may teach, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. So God's love gives life. For what reason? That we may keep his testimonies. What are the testimonies of God? Go to verse 86. The testimony of God, first part of 86, is that all his commandments are sure. If you have the NASB, it will say all his commandments are faithful. So what is the testimony that God wants for himself? I think it's very clear. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. No need to turn there. Let me read it for you. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. I think the testimony that God desires more than anything else is that his word is true and right and faithful. His word is true and right and faithful. I find it very interesting that verse 88 begins with God's love. And I think this is a marvelous place to begin with God's love. But I think it is a blight upon us, we as the church of America, that we so often end at God's love as well. Because this is not where the text takes us. It doesn't say begin with God's love, end with God's love. God's love is the driving force giving us life, but it's not this mushy, gushy, touchy-feely type of love. That's not a biblical love. And we don't often realize it. In fact, we, we, we oftentimes begin at this love and we end there just desiring, being concerned that as many people as possible just love Jesus. And, and I desire as many people to, as possible to love Jesus in the biblically defined way. Not in the way we define or the popular opinion defines what is loving Jesus. In fact, I'm, I'm fearful according to Matthew 7 when many people say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. I'm very, very fearful that when Christ comes back and that trumpet blasts, that it will not be well for many Christian souls because they love Jesus and they're going to hell. That's a scary thought. 
Are we, are, we, are we going to the Word to make sure that our love is biblically defined? Is the way Christ has commanded it. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. At the cross of Calvary, the perfect picture of God's love is where we gain the strength, or rather, according to Psalm 119, 88, the life to keep his testimonies, to keep his commandments. But we have got to understand that it does not just end at that love. That love that he so graciously gives us should drive us to love to him that works itself out in practical ways, in biblical ways, that show that what he says in his word is true. Because he also says, if you do not love me and keep my commandments, eternal damnation. That is his word as well. It's not just that God is love. Oh yes. But before that, God is holy, holy, holy. That is his word as well. So if our love for Christ, be very careful with this. I totally want you to love Jesus, but love him according to the way his word has defined. Not according to the way we necessarily think that should look like. Go to scripture daily to discern, are we loving him the way he tells us to love him? Not by the way we think we should do this. So what am I saying here? What am I saying? I believe that the text, Psalm 119, Matthew 15, Mark 7 makes it very clear that the lack of a persevering prayer life, as in these three texts, is simply a sign of the weakness of, of the Word in our lives. It's simply a sign of the weakness of the Word in our lives. Because if we are in the Word, if we're meditating, if we're memorizing the Word as we passionately should be doing, we're going to see His promises. We're going to see his word, his testimonies there, verse 86, are sure that they are faithful. And that truth will not weary us if we do not get an answer or no answer at all, but instead will empower us, push us, drive us to know that he alone has the answer. He alone can give us that surety, can give us the answer. The psalmist knew God's word. The Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, knew God's word. Look at Matthew 15. Look what she says. I love what she calls out. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. How did she know that? How did she know that? Well, the, the talk of the town was not just the fact, it was not just constrained to the Jews. Certainly the Gentiles knew, hey, something's up. There's a guy doing things we have never seen before. He's doing incredible works. He's feeding people. So a lot, everyone knew something was up. And, and, and he was, God is not constrained to just the Jews, obviously. We see this in Scripture so incredibly well. But she got it. She understood. She knew who God was, who Christ was, and then as he, who He was as His Son. So when we, when we know the God of the Bible as these, 
as the psalmist and the Syrophoenician woman knew. There's going to be a faithful study in his word. There's going to be a passion that does come, but it's rightly founded. It's well established. There's going to be humility that's, that's going to be there and persevering prayer. It's all going to be natural results. Passion, humility, persevering prayer. Natural results of us that are faithfully studying God's word. Look at, look at the, the, the Psalm 86 again. Look at the humility. I would rather be a doorkeeper. I would rather take a humble position in the house of my God if I could but be with him. Syrophoenician woman, I'll eat crumbs. Be like the dogs if I but can know and be and, and obtain some small blessing from the master. So what is our attitude toward prayer this morning? What is our attitude toward persevering prayer? Are we persevering in prayer? In studying this, I I was so convicted that I I fail so much. I I was just blind to it. I pray. I pray a lot. But I don't pray like this. Persevering, pushing, yearning, longing, pleading until until I clearly understand what he has answered and he may not answer but if he's not answering again is he testing us is he testing us in our faith i i think obviously we have got to be grounded in the word that's the point that if we have a weak prayer life weak persevering prayer we have a weak probably a weak time in the word and you can pray a long time without being in the word but you're going to burn out there's no There's no fuel for the fire. So I don't want you, if you don't have a persevering prayer life, or if you don't have a normal time in the Word, I don't want you to run home and just go. I'm going to read four chapters today. I'm going to read eight chapters today. I'm going to catch up with the Bible reading prayer. Don't just dive in and somehow just try to grab as much as you can and and catch up. This is not a works-based thing. That won't work. In fact, I think you'll be very burned out from that as well. This, this prayer life is a barometer of our time in the Word. So see that. It's a barometer of our faith. See that. But, but understand that there's growth. J.I. Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. Two facts about the triune Jehovah are assumed, if not actually stated, in every single Bible passage. The first is that he is king, absolute monarch of the universe, ordering all its affairs, working out his will and all that, it hap- that all that happens within it. The second fact is that he speaks, uttering words that express his will in order to cause it to be done. I really seriously wonder if there's ever been a society like ours who has so many Bibles, so many internet websites with the word on it, and so little pursuit of holiness, so little fruit compared with the amount of truth that we have. So what's the practical application? Well, for those of you who are strong in prayer, I encourage you to be strong in the Word. Continue to do what you're doing. Fight the good fight. Continue to press. It is not easy. And I encourage you to be encouraged to know He's testing. He has an answer. He will answer. He delights to hear you. For those of us who realize that we may need to change some things the way we're praying or our commitment to the word. We're not just, you know, sort of 
grabbing our Bibles in the morning, read a verse or two of Scripture because we're behind, and we rush out the door with the thought of, I'll just pray to kind of make up for my lack of time in the Word. Here's a couple thoughts. Number one is, don't try to eat meat when you're not accustomed to milk. Don't run out and grab yourself a big T-bone, T-bone steak and just try to chow this thing down when you haven't taken the simple, simple nourishment. So start with simple nourishment. The second thing I'm going to tell you is, is that you cannot do this by yourself. You cannot run home and somehow will yourself. You need the body of Christ. You need a brother, a sister, two, three, four, mom, dad, whatever it would be. You need more than yourself who can hold you accountable and keep you and help you walk through this process. And third thing is, I would encourage you, once you take that little bit of nourishment, take a small bite of that and chew on it for a long time. Just, just simply, just small, doesn't have to be a lot. You will grow in leaps and bounds if you'll do that. Just taking a small passage of scripture, chewing on it, meditating it, understanding it, and applying it to your life. And then move to the next one. And then a little, as you get bigger, as you get stronger, you'll be able to get more of it. And then you'll be able to read a lot of bigger passages. But if, if you aren't in this, don't go try to jump yourself into a big bite. Start with small bites and seek practical application from those things. Seek to make the word change your daily habits, your, de- your actions, your words into conformity with it. So I implore you this morning uh, not to begin this new year. Yes, we've begun it, but this, in some ways, really, we feel as if kind of February, January is sort of the beginning. February, we jump in. Really implore you this morning, do not, not really get in to this year without first stepping back and, and analyzing. Because if you want to be somewhere in December 2013 where you are not now... In your spiritual walk, take stock of where you are so you know where you need to go. If you don't know where you are, how can you get there? Take stock. Understand. Let the Holy Spirit use these type passages of scriptures to say, I need help. I'm weak here. I'm not as strong as I thought, to, I, thought I need to be. I may need to repent. I may not have any prayer life at all. I may not be in the Word as much as I should. Allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak that. We can't... Don't try to distract. I find myself when the Holy Spirit's really pushing and, and trying to get something and I don't want to hear it, I distract. I move. I sing a song. I do something to sort of block it out. Don't do that. Respond. React to what He's seeking to do. And know this. Know that He is faithful. That His faithfulness is so great that it is sure. That every word of His is faithful. That every one of His promises are true. That there is, there is nothing in this scripture, in this Bible, that is not as relevant today for you as it was when it was given. It is as true today. It is infallible. He will remain faithful to what he has said. And you can, with boldness, stand unashamedly upon what he has called us to do. So we've begun the new year. Do not be afraid this year. Do not be afraid that as you conform your life to the word of truth, as you pray through scripture, Mr. Welch gave a great, great handout last week, the Reformation study guide, this, uh, just a sheet of paper to help us pray through scripture. As we do that, 
There's going to be change that happens in your life. And do not be afraid if that looks radical. If you have to eradicate sin out of your life in a radical way that makes people look at you and say, wow, that person's different. This is what we need is this return to the word of truth, whether it's through our prayer life, through our actions, through our word, to return to the word of truth as our standard for what we will do, for how we will act. Know that his promises, his word is true and let that strengthen you in your prayer to press for his mercy and grace and the fulfillment of his promises in this new year. Let us be Christians of the word in 2013. Let me quote, let me close with a quote from J.I. Packer. Again, knowing God. What is a Christian? He can be described from many angles, but from what we have said, it is clear that we can cover everything by saying a Christian is a man who acknowledges and lives under the word of God. He submits without reserve to the word of God written in the scripture of truth, believing the teaching, trusting the promises, following the commands. His eyes are to the God of the Bible as his father and the Christ of the Bible as his savior. He will tell you, the Christian, if you ask him, that the word of God has both convinced him of sin and assured him of forgiveness. His conscience, like Luther's, Luther's, is captive to the word of God and he aspires, like the psalmist, to have his whole life brought into line with it. So let us be Christians of the word. Go to the word. Analyze our lives through the word. And be encouraged to know that he is speaking very clearly and wants to speak deeply into your life as well. Let's pray. Oh, Father. We thank you, Lord, for your graciousness to us. We so often, Lord, fail to live our lives by the standard you have set for us. And yet, oh God, thank you. Thank you that your son has died and is risen and is alive on, for our behalf. That we might have that right relationship with you. That even in our failings, you are so gracious, so loving, so merciful. And yet so willing to do whatever is necessary to draw us back into that close relationship with you. So, Lord, I would pray for grace for my own life, for my own family's life. That as we endeavor to be people that persevere in prayer... And because we persevere, we persevere in prayer, because we, we persevere in the word, we're committed to it. We're committed to allow it to speak into every area of our lives. That you would, you would grant us the blessing of being able to hear the answer to our prayer. Your answer in your specific time. And Lord, if, if you choose to test and to not answer when we, when we ask... That we would, we would continue, not wearily, not in a discouraged way, not depressed, not dissuaded in any way, but strengthened by the promises of Scripture to continue to press, to continue to ask, 
to continue to pray, trusting that in your perfect timing, you will answer, and we do not want to miss what that answer may be. So Lord, I pray that you would allow us, this body of believers, this assembly by which we call Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship, to be a body of believers in prayer, true, persevering, longing, passionate, heartfelt prayer in 2013. That we might see, we might stand and see the salvation of our God. Oh, Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. And may you alone be glorified. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.